Walk This Way, not just the title of an Aerosmith song, but also could be the motto of the caravan of Central American migrants currently headed to the United States. I'm Richard Miles, host of 35 West, and I have back today Andrew Seeley, president of the Migration Policy Institute and author of Vanishing Frontiers. Andrew, welcome back. Thank you, Richard. Great to be here. So I recall I had you on uh, early June of this last summer, and you were just about to release your book. I think it was the day before Vanishing Frontiers. How's that going? How's the book doing? It's been a lot of fun, actually. I mean, it started a conversation. It's a book about how Mexico influences our lives in unexpected ways. It's been interesting having conversations around the country about it, actually, and and realizing how surprised people are by the stories in the book. I mean, I was surprised by many of them as I was writing it, and, and I'm happy to surprise others. So it's good. Vanishing Frontiers. So I know in the first few months after publishing a book, it's pretty brutal, right? You have to do you're, a lot of traveling, a lot of speaking. Are you, are you sort, is that sort of played out now? Or are you still on a plane every, every I, other I'm day? I'm on a plane every day, but not for the book. I mean, more for Migration Policy Institute these days. But uh, but over the summer, I, I spent a lot of time talking about the book. But now it's more on migration issues. Just came back from Central America and the border, the U.S.-Mexico border, and uh, headed down to South America, actually, where the, you know, the other crisis, the much bigger crisis, actually, are the Venezuelans that have been leaving and headed right. to Colombia and Ecuador and Peru and elsewhere. Excellent point about Venezuela. That's the migration crisis in the hemisphere right now. Um, today, though, we're going to talk about uh, sort of a smaller in terms of numbers, but probably just as big in terms of political effect oh, yes. now in the United States in particular and, of, of course, in Mexico. And that is the caravan of Central American uh, migrants that is currently heading to the United States. So let's start out by talking about sort of the, the numbers as we know them right now. Um, the estimates I've seen range from about 7,000 from the UN. Um, the Mexican government has a number about half that, depending on the day that you're getting it from roughly 3,600 uh, at the, the latest count. Um, they've traveled now uh, about 100 miles into Mexico um, and have quite a ways to go if they intend to reach the United States. We're talking about almost uh, you know 1,300 so miles, depending on where they go. Um, what do we know in terms of you know their um, I guess let's start with logistics. You know, it, it's hard to move 7,000 people by foot anywhere, much less uh, having them walk along very hot, sort of dangerous roads. Who is organizing this? What kind of support are they getting? Where are they getting their support from? You know, it, it, it is a huge undertaking, and there's a lot of children, um, and there's women and older people. And, you know, this is not a, a group of 18-year-old, of you know, boys headed up. There's a lot of women carrying children, fathers carrying children. I mean, it, it is... It's quite a sight from the pictures that we've seen. Um, this started in in a somewhat spontaneous fashion. I mean, I've talked to some of the people that were were there when this happened, and in Honduras, it, it started in Progreso, Honduras, in northern Honduras, uh, with with a guy named Bartolo Reyes who was uh, trying to organize. He had, he had organized caravans of people looking for their disappeared relatives in Mexico since the 1990s, the late 1990s, and had done a number of those with families uh, who had lost relatives on their way. And then he ended up participating last year in the caravan that was organized, the, the one that created all the tweets last time, um, uh, heading north back in March and April, joined late. He wasn't an organizer. And he had the idea of getting, you know, according to his telling, he had the idea of getting people together in Progreso and traveling together and did a Facebook post. And then other people started joining from some other cities. 
But then this got into the media in Honduras. And once it got into the media, and particularly one media report that said that they were giving out money and food and clothes, it just snowballed and people started joining. And, and you know, they were surprised by how many people were there. And they started off. And, and, you know, this was a combination of people who were already planning to leave, who thought it would be great to go with others, safety in numbers, and probably a lot of people who you know, had always thought of leaving, but suddenly they saw a chance to go without having to pay a coyote from Honduras, right? I mean, you join in, here's your chance. There are stories of people that just grabbed a backpack and headed out and suddenly got 7,000 people crossing through Honduras, Guatemala, and into Mexico. So uh, the majority of these are Hondurans, right? Yes, yes. Now, other people have joined, but vast majority are Hondurans. And, but it didn't start out at, at that number, at 7,000 in Honduras, right, all at once? Or did it just no. sort of start mushrooming, it started mushrooming as it, it went through Guatemala? As it, as it, I started mushrooming in Honduras and then in Guatemala. And then in Mexico, they picked up more people, um, including some non-Hondurans. So it really has grown um, over time. And, and there are rumors that as they've gone in Mexico, it's picked up people, although others have dropped off. You know, I mean, there, there has been some people going back, some people staying in Mexico, people heading off on their own. But uh, but other folks are added on. So the the current focus, at least in the United States, is as you said, uh, President Trump's uh, tweeting about it, and uh, you know the the fear is that we're going to have these seven thousand people show up in Brownsville, you know, in a couple of weeks. But if you do the math uh, and you look at it, um, you're looking at again uh, thousands of people walking, mostly walking, right? Some of them yeah. are getting rides uh, now and then. Uh, and we're looking at, like I said, between thirteen and fourteen hundred miles uh, just to make it to the closest U.S. legal entry point. The, the caravan last spring, I think it started out with a little over a thousand people, mm-hmm. twelve hundred, and it ended up with what two to three hundred, right? Right, exactly. Okay. Yeah. Um, so, what what is? Does anybody realistically think that uh, even that percentage is going to make it from where they currently are now uh, to the United States? No. Now, what what happened last time is is instructive, though, which is last time the Mexicans had some apply for asylum. We know they've done that this time. There's over a thousand, according to the Mexican government. There's over a thousand that have applied for asylum. More than that, actually, I think fourteen hundred may have been the last number I saw, um, and, which is a lot, by the way. Mexico only got fourteen thousand applications all of last year, so that this is a real. You know, this is beyond what they normally can process. So that's a lot. Last time, they also gave uh, humanitarian protection to some, and then to a lot, they gave what's called an exit permit, which allows people uh, two weeks, 20 days, not quite sure, a, few, a short period of time, to leave the country. And what happened when they did that, so this they did in Oaxaca, I believe, if I remember correctly, they, people started hopping on buses because then you're legally in the country. And so some people went back home because they could, you know, they retired, but some people headed out on their own to the border. And to try and cross on their own, and uh, you know, and then some people stayed in Mexico. There's actually a lot of, of at least from what I've heard, there's um, people talk about a number of these folks staying and creating small communities in Tijuana and Mexico City and elsewhere. So there's some evidence they stayed, um, but some headed to the border on their own. Probably the biggest thing that's going to happen here. Um, you know, in addition to asylum, is you know, people know that they can't go to the border and try and cross in mass into the United States. You know, if you seven thousand people show up at a a border checkpoint in the U.S., they will be met with you know an, an equivalent response from the border patrol. So they will break off over time and go into smaller groups. That's at least what one would think would happen. Uh, so we're recording this on Thursday, twenty fifth. That's important to note because obviously these things develop and change rapidly. And as of this morning, it looks like uh, they're heading to Mexico City. 
uh, and supposedly to meet with Mexican senators. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's uh, let, let's talk a little bit, about, like you've, you've already said, about what the Mexican of response to this has been. And it seems like the deal is if you ask for asylum or if you uh, do uh, you know, some sort of request, then the Mexican government will, will step in and provide some sort of assistance. And if not, they're providing nothing at all, right? The, the press reports at least say all of the, the water and the food and other help they've gotten has been from private citizens mm-hmm. or churches or NGOs, but not the Mexican government. I think that's right. I mean, the Mexican government does not want to sanction the caravan. I mean, they're, they're in a tough place here because the the reality is these are people in the country without legal documents. Mexico is has you know fairly strong immigration laws, um, but is is also a country of people. You know, has a very recent immigrant immigrant history of its own. People have family members in. In the United States, you know, they remember that immigrant that immigrant history, and so Mexican public opinion is somewhat sympathetic to the caravan. It's not overwhelming sympathetic, but it's somewhat sympathetic, and so the Mexican government is reluctant to sanction it because the, you know that gets you on the bad side of the U.S. government, and they don't want to set a precedent of people joining big caravans and heading north, and at the same time, they don't want to get on the bad side of Mexican public opinion. And we're also at a strange political moment, which is, you know, Peña Nieto is still the president of Mexico, but López Obrador is about to be inaugurated and already has a majority in Congress. The new Congress has started and so effectively control much of what's going on in government. And so there's a negotiation back and forth between the the outgoing government, the incoming government about how to respond to this, as well as with the Americans, as well as with Central America. I mean, there's a lot of negotiations. So the Mexican government has been hands off on the caravan, but they have been trying to offer people protection that they think Matt, you know, meet a screening test. And they may try and, I mean, it's hard to tell. I don't know what they plan to do, but they, they might well give people exit permits again or other forms of staying. Right. And according to the, some of the same press reports this morning, there's already evidence that, that a good number of pe- uh, people now are even returning, accepting bus rides back. Yes, that does uh, seem to, to be happening. To Honduras, they're getting tired. No, no surprise here. Yeah. Walking, uh, they've done something close to like 40 miles a day. Well, since entering Mexico, a little bit less, but yeah. in total, you know, these incredible yeah. numbers. Um, it, it's pretty impressive. I mean, it really is. It, and this doesn't seem to be a group that has real leadership. I mean, in the sense, I'm sure it's it's creating leadership. Um, but this is a group that really, I mean, Bartolo Reyes got deported out of Guatemala. Um, it's not clear there's another visible leader there. I mean, this is sort of a an organic group that I, I imagine must have developed some internal leadership, but didn't come with it naturally. And so I, it's interesting, it would be interesting to know who's advising them, you know, who's setting up meetings with the the, the senators in Mexico, for example. I'm sure there are groups that have approached them to advise them. But in in uh, but it really is a, a sort of self-sustaining group that's that's playing it by ear in many and ways. And there's no real ideological component here, right? I mean, there's no sort of agenda in terms of this isn't about uh, migrant rights or anything like that, right? I you know not for the people that are marching there. I mean, they're they're just trying to get to the U.S. But the you know the people that organized it initially were people who who were activists on migrant issues. They were critics of the government in Honduras. But they organized it really around the migrants, right? And then they sort of threw some broadsides about how, you know, we people are leaving because the government can't, 
you know, can't provide for them, which you know Honduras is in a bad situation. So, but it wasn't political. It wasn't organized for politics, right? If you're going to organize a march against the Honduran government, you don't organize people to leave the country or as people to walk to Tegucigalpa, right? So this was not a march organized to protest the government, and it's not. You know, I think there are a lot of people that would like to make this into a march about migrants' rights, but frankly. That for the people who are there, this is just an opportunity to try and, to, and get try closer to, to their goal. Right. Yeah. So, Andrew, let's game this out a little bit. Let's let's make some assumptions here and say that roughly the same fraction of this caravan makes it to the United States, so about one six. So, let's say anywhere from a, a thousand to fifteen hundred by hook or by crook somehow managed to make it to to Brownsville or, or some entry point, um, whether that's driving, walking, hitching rides. What are what's going to be uh, the process. What is the process now? When that happens, you get you know a family shows up. How do U.S. authorities uh, treat them from the minute they sort of step up to the border and until they're eventually adjudicated or sent back or whatnot? You, there, there are two ways you you do this. One, is, I mean, there are three things you can do. One is you can go to a U.S. port of entry and ask for asylum. Um, some places, those ports of entry are saturated, and so it takes a few days before they'll take your case. And there you can walk up, and it, there's an asylum window, and you can apply for, for asylum. Say so you, you're seeking asylum, they'll take you to a detention center, but you have what's called an affirmative asylum claim. Other pl- people walk up to the border between ports of entry and then look for the nearest border patrol officer. They wait till they get caught, and as soon as they're, but they're not really trying to evade capture, they're, you know, and they'll say, you know, I, I want to apply for asylum as soon as they're arrested. And then there's some people that know they don't have an asylum case. I mean, that's a lot of these folks as well, right? I mean, and they will, you know, like has always happened, they'll try and, you know, find their best way in. And, and most of these people, if you're trying to evade Border Patrol, unless you're extremely poor and have no family in the U.S., you know, from what I'm told, what people tend to do is, you know, they'll get to to Nuevo Laredo or or you know Reynosa, and they'll call family members in the U.S. and say, you know, this is where I am. Can you send someone to get me? Obviously, that costs money. The family members have to be willing to do that. Hopefully, they've arranged that ahead of time if they're planning to do that, and and they'll send a, a coyote, a pollero, a, a guide to go pick them up and take them across. Chances of getting in are, are slim these days. I mean, it's actually hard to get across the U.S.-Mexico border. People do it still, but but the chances have gone way down. It's not like it used to be. You mentioned that when they, the ones who come and basically make no uh, attempt to to flee, and so border patrol agent comes up to them and they talk about a fear of pro- prosecution. And now there's a standard called a, a well-founded fear, right? Mm-hmm. Where um, if they can credibly say, "Hey, I'm going to go back and get uh, you know uh, killed, or my wife will be raped, or whatnot," um, that the border agent at that point. Um, if they believe there's a certain actual percentage, mm-hmm. right? If there's 10% like a ten percent chance yep. possibility. Good. So it's fairly low bar in terms of that that agent on the ground making the determination, right? Right. Okay. It, well, it's the it's, it's actually they, once they go to detention center, it's a USCIS U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services. There's often a pre-screening with the the Customs and Border with the Border Patrol agents, but the the USCIS is actually responsible for that determination. And they'll usually give them once in a detention center. They'll a few days in. They'll give them a 24-hour notice, and then the next day they have to present themselves and explain why they have a fear of returning. And they have to meet a bar. It's a low bar because it's only 10%. But if they haven't been deported before, but they do. Um, but they do have to show there's a reason they're not just looking for a better life. That there actually is fear of something specific, and it's because of their membership in some sort of group. But it, it's often, you know, race, religion, you know, political persuasion. But it's also membership sometimes in a family group, right? They're after my family because my brother was, 
you know, is a pastor in a church or because my brother refused to join the gang, that membership counts too. And it's at that stage that it creates a political headache, right? Yes. For whatever administration's yes. in power, right? Because right. you've got you, you can particularly if it's a family, you can only hold the children for so long while yes. you adjudicate the parents' claim. And if you can't meet that time frame, your options at that point are not great. <laughs> that's right. I mean, it really is. And, and that's where the government is letting people go, um, often with ankle bracelets, sometimes on their own reconnaissance. Surprisingly, people do tend to show up for court, but not always, right? I mean, it, it certainly is a risk. Um, majority of people do actually show up for court, interestingly enough. Um, not everyone understands the system either at that point. And it, it is we, – we have a system that's become – you know what? We, we set up our border system to deal with mostly single Mexican men crossing the border, right? That's, that's what we saw for years, right? This up until 2007 was, you know, hundreds of thousands of Mexican men trying to cross occasionally women, occasionally families. But there weren't a lot of asylum claims. Now we've got Central Americans, many of whom have plausible claims. Not all are going to win them, but many have at least the, the bar of credible fear. And we just don't have enough asylum officers. We don't, surely don't have space in the court system, in the immigration courts. And we haven't fixed this yet. And, and we keep you know, dancing around this. But, but there is a solution which is beginning to fix the system so it works in a much quicker way, much fairer to people that have a claim, but also much quicker to deport those that, that, don't, that don't meet the minimum standards. So, so probably, uh, I mean, it sounds like a large part of the issue that we're dealing with is this change, dramatic change, really, in the composition of the immigration, the, the numbers are much smaller, but the cases are much tougher. That's exactly right. Right, We're dealing with much smaller, I mean, despite the sort of sense of crisis, we really are dealing with much smaller numbers of people trying to cross the, the border, but they have different rights now and different, you know, and kids from Mexico also don't have the same rights as kids. Kids from Mexico and, and Canada don't have the same rights as, as children, as minors from any other country in the world. And so it's different sort of standard applies to the children and different standard applies when you apply for asylum. All right, so let's let's go on then to sort of uh, pass this caravan. However, this is resolved. This probably won't be the last one. It That's sounds right. like we're going to see more. I mean, if we saw one in the spring, and and we're not even through the fall, we just barely started the fall. This sounds like it's a rec and particularly I, the, the nature of the fact that it, this was not sort of a political demonstration; it was kind of a spontaneous. I think that's right. And the last one was. I mean, the, the Pueblo Sin Fronteras, the group that's organized these every year, that was a political statement. This one does seem to be spontaneous. And once you've let the genie out of the bottle, that people can do this. It's a cheaper way to travel. It's a safer way to travel. I, I can't see how you stop it from happening again. But the irony of this, too, is, you know, I think the publicity that was given to the last caravan, which started at the White House, but, you know, then went through, you know, we were all watching it. It may have it been what general. Raise the right. profile, yeah. right? Yeah. I mean, oh, I mean, you can do this. <laughs> this has been going on for years and no one noticed. And this actually, I think, may this have actually, let the genie out of the bottle right. and people can keep doing it. So we, we know that kind of the root causes of this are, are poverty, violence, instability in Northern Triangle countries in Honduras, Guatemala, El Salvador. And uh, so if you want to stop this, you've got to fix those problems. But in between that, you know, fixing those root problems that, that are tough and, and multiple administrations have tried for years to, to address, um, U.S. administrations and, and Central American with not a great deal of success. And, you know, separating families at the U.S. border. Is there, is there any way within in that, that chain of Central Americans showing up at Mexico's southern border and then ending up at the U.S. southern border that – uh, the governments involved, including the Central American governments, can do better 
in, is is there a, is there an opportunity here, for instance, and, and maybe I'm just dreaming here because I'm pathologically optimistic, but is there an, an opportunity for the incoming Mexican government and the Trump administration to do something uh, on the, on the Mexican southern border in terms of cooperation at any level, or is that am I just being no? I think there's a lot of opportunity. I mean, you know, the answer to this. I mean, there are no answers, but the you know you could you could imagine trying to address this with a series of measures, right? Which is you you strengthen asylum procedures in Mexico and the United States. You speed them up in a way that you give people justice quickly. You know, you return those who don't meet the bar quickly as well. Um, but you know, you're, you try and be as expansive, as generous as you can, but also as quick with those that aren't going to make it. Um, you you provide some legal pathways for work. The new Mexican government is the incoming Mexican administration is talking about some legal visas for people who want to come work in Mexico. I think you have to figure out how you get them out of southern Mexico into places where there are more jobs. We could think about how we extend some of our agricultural visas as well to Central America, maybe some of our service visas, where we haven't had you know, the H-2As and H-2Bs. We haven't had as many Central Americans. You know, Maybe there are ways you create some opportunities. Because when people think they have a chance of going to work legally, even if they don't make it the first time, they're less likely to pick up and run, right? They're less likely to pick up and go. And you got to invest, frankly, in in the Mexican Immigration Service as well to make it a professional organization that can can do its job um, in a way. I mean, there, there are so many cases now of of them colluding in in ways they shouldn't um, with uh, with people who are preying on migrants. And and I think there's a commitment from the new government to see if they can clean that up and and turn this into a real professional force. And that means also, you know, that does mean actually trying to know who comes into your country. It's is there an opportunity here as well for sort of a joint U.S.-Mexican public relations effort? Because it seems to me that part of what is being exploited here by either people who know or don't know better is it's the idea that there's that there's a lot of daylight in between what the Mexican government says and can do and what the United States government says and can do, and you you try to exploit that by like you know if we just get through Mexico we know the Mexicans aren't going to stop us we show up and it's a U.S. problem and Mexico doesn't care. I mean, what if you had some sort of public service announcement brought to you by the United States and the Mexican government saying, here's exactly what's going to happen. Here's, you know, what won't happen. It's not that easy, blah, blah, blah. It's, is that something that could work? You know, it, they, we've tried doing that in Central America, just <laughs> okay. from the U.S. side, and it doesn't seem to work See, everyone very always well. has my bright ideas before yeah. I do. I don't, I don't understand. <laughs> no, we, we have a whole campaign, PR campaign in, in Central America to dissuade people from going. It clearly hasn't worked. But uh, but what I do think you have to do is, is you know, there's a trade-off. The, the one one side of this, the, the position of the current U.S. administration has been, you know, asylum is a joke. Um, people are cheating us. You know, we need to make asylum less accessible. On the Mexican side, it is we don't really want to send people back, you know, because that would be inhumane. So we're going to let them cross through the country, even if they get preyed upon. We've got to actually think of be smarter, which is there is a deal to be made in both countries, which says we can be generous on asylum. We can be expansive on asylum. But in return for making it quick and sending people back that that don't have protection claims, I mean, let's be generous, let's be expansive, let, let's you know give it to people that really are fleeing violence. But we can't take in people, we can't take in everyone. So if if you if you don't have a reasonable case based on persecution or at least fear of violence when you return, we you know we do have to return you. And in Mexico, you know, hardening the border, making it harder to get across. But also giving people real access to asylum, and Mexico is more generous on asylum. They they have something called called um, uh, complementary protection for people that don't quite make the asylum bar, but they clearly are fleeing from violence, and you don't want to send them back. 
if Mexico could be more assertive and more, you know, in giving people that opportunity, it could also be more assertive in not letting other people through. And, and that's humane, but it's also tough. And, and I think in both countries, we want to be, you know, tough. We want to know who's coming into our countries. We can't take everyone, but we want to do it in a way that's humane and does take care of people that are fleeing for their lives. So, Andrew, I know you're not a political consultant. You're a solid think tank guy, you know, researcher. <laughs> but let's just pretend that we're political consultants here. And uh, what is the what is the political angle here in terms of winners and losers? Uh, let's start with Mexico, the the old government who probably didn't want this to happen in their last six yeah, weeks, right? Uh, yeah. And then and then the new government that's going to have to this is going to be their problem in in what you know forty days or so. And then in the United States, we have our midterm elections coming up. So there's obviously uh, there's always a political benefit to almost everything that happens. Who are the winners and losers politically speaking, if any? Let's start with Mexico. You know, with Mexico, I think you're right. I, I don't think the Peñanito government just wanted to deal with this, right? I mean, they were going on a high note. They got the with the U.S. They got the you know the Na- NAFTA, revised yeah. NAFTA, whatever it's called these days, through, and they really I think we're, we're ready to go on that high note. And so this is it throws a note of conflict in there that's hard to deal with. And I think the new incoming Mexican administration is aware now that this is going to be the tough issue they have to deal with the U.S. on. This will be the you know this is going to be yeah they got rid of NAFTA you know that that's you know check that box they don't have to deal with it but uh, they're going to have to deal with with a really tough issues of migration that is on President Trump's mind. And they're going to have to figure out how they respond. And on top of that, they also have to – they're going to be held accountable by Mexican human rights groups right. in, in a way that they uh, – those Completely. groups have much more currency with the incoming government that than the old right. one. So they can't say, they are, not our problem, let the U.S. deal with it. That's exactly right. And they, they really – I mean, the incoming government really does want to do things right. They they But doing things right means both you know, rule of law, being tough in some ways, but at the same time – respecting human rights and respecting due process and giving people opportunities to seek protection. And they will have a lot of push from human rights groups on this. And they um, and they have a lot of push from the U.S. And I think they're, this is going to be higher on the agenda. I think Lopez Obrador would like to focus on development in Mexico, and he's going to end up spending more time than he'd like worrying about how to deal with the U.S. on this issue. And in the U.S. side, you know, the conventional wisdom, I think, is probably right that this helps President Trump, helps the Republicans. You know, there's a – and you see this because Democrats have been largely silent on this issue and Republicans have been talking about it. You know, the visual of people sort of snaking in a caravan towards the U.S., this seems – you know, even if they are poor women and children and and families and and young men, you know, does create a sense of, you know, things being out of control – we can say till we're blue in the face that the numbers are small and this is less than in the past, but the visual is clear. And I, th- I think it does help President Trump. But then again, you know, I... But then the, the, the family separation issue was, uh, yeah. was ter- terrible for the administration. So you could see a it Democrat was. thinking like, well, gosh, this yeah. this would be a great image to have uh, as voters go to the election. It could be. I You know, I think immigration cuts both ways, right? And because people have mixed sentiments. People want to know that who comes into this country, that we know who it is, that people are coming through legal channels. They're more sympathetic when it's an issue of someone fleeing violence than just looking for work. But, you know, people understand that you don't pick up and move 2,000 miles, you know, with your family if if things aren't really bad. So there's a lot of sympathy. And at the same time, people want to know that we have rules and that we're respecting those rules and that, you know, we're enforcing them. And and so this is one that cuts both ways, right? And when, when presidents have tried to go one side or the other, family separation with Obama putting kids in, in tent communities, you know, people get upset about that. But also when people feel there's not any enforcement going on, 
people get upset because they feel the rules aren't being followed. So you got to strike a middle ground where you're both, you know, that, that you're trying to at least be fair to enforce the law, but at the same time do it in a way that takes into to count people's protection needs. And and uh, there is a chance that President Trump will overshoot. It's his natural. It's his natural tendency, right? I mean, so he may overshoot like with family separation, but the, but it may also be a bonanza for him. We'll see. Final question, Andrew. Is this enough? Let's, let's just, again, make another assumption that the problem's not going away. We're going to see future groups or caravans with a number, at least the numbers there of Central Americans and Central American families will continue to try to make it to the U.S. southern border. Is this issue enough to uh, derail or sidetrack the U.S.-Mexican, the broader U.S.-Mexican bilateral relationship? Or do you think it'll just sort of be a chronic nagging issue on the order of like, you know, softwood lumber from Canada, where we just all acknowledge, yeah, it's a yeah. problem, we're working on it, yeah. but it's not enough to to really wreck the relationship? You know, it, it's somewhere in between, I think. You know, I, I used to think we were one tweet away from blowing up the relationship, but uh, but I actually think that, that there is a... a Recognition and, and the NAFTA negotiations were the obvious sign of this. That there is that there is a recognition that we can't tear each other apart, right? That, that we can't tear apart from each other. We can't tear each other apart either, but we can't tear apart from each other. That, that in fact we're too interdependent, you know. And and I think that for President Trump, you know, all presidents mature in the Oval Office. Um, I I think there's a realization. I think that even he has, and certainly people around him in his administration had, that how important this relationship was for for Americans. And I think the same thing is true on migration for both sides. I mean, this Lopez Obrador will learn through experience that he can't ignore sensitivities in the U.S. on this issue. That that sort of letting people walk through Mexico, you know, without you know, saying this is not our problem is not going to happen because, you know, that is ignoring their own laws and it looks bad. But on the other hand, the U.S. is also not going to shut down the entire border over this because that would hurt hurt our country. And and I think it'll be a nagging, it'll be a nagging issue. It'll be more visible than softwood lumber. It'll be bigger, bigger news story. Um, but it but it will it won't be resolved. It'll be managed. And I think the fact that, as as you said, it used to be millions of, of Mexican men, and now you're talking about Central American families. It's not really a, a, an issue of Mexico defending uh, its its citizens. It's a, a third country that it, it now is responsible, but it's not quite the same politically from the Mexican point of view. And it That's seems right. to me, it strikes me that in the in the comments that President Trump has made in the last few days, he has gone after the Central American governments for not doing enough to stop their own citizens from leaving. Although I'm not sure how they would do right, that. Right, exactly. That's legal. Right. It reminds me of Cuba <laughs> or, or you know, the Soviet Berlin Union. Wall. Right. You keep yeah. your own people in. Um, but it, it doesn't really seems like he's come down that hard on the Mexican government. I think he's sort of moderated his comments yeah. on on. The Mexican. I, I think he knows that this is the Mexican government is working on this. I mean, I've talked to people on both sides, sort of, you know, a couple levels down, and I think they are, but they're both trying to to work through this. And I think the same thing is going to happen in the Lopez Obrador administration. You know, I don't think it's, and you know, if suddenly President Trump doesn't get reelected and we have a Democrat. I I don't think it. I think the dynamics will be very similar, right? I mean, it doesn't really matter who's in the presidential seat. It may change occasionally the tenor of the conversation. Trump is a little more likely to start sending tweets out about this. Maybe Lopez Obrador is as well. But but in the end, a couple levels down, policymakers in both countries are trying to figure out how you manage this in a way that doesn't blow up the relationship. And I think that is is what's going to happen. That that is consistent for the Mexicans with their their sympathies, with the sympathies that the public has. Um, but uh, But at the same time, you know, shows that Mexico does have laws and has some muscle. And the U.S. side acknowledging that Mexico can't completely stop this, but they would, you know, 
but that they are doing what they can to, to at least slow the traffic. Andrew, thanks very much for coming in this morning. I will make one confident prediction. I think I'll probably have you back, and we'll still be talking about <laughs> migration. It, it won't be like softwood lumber. Um, but thanks for your insightful analysis and, and commentary, and, and wish you the best of luck. Thank you, Richard. Thank you.